astronauts podcast my name is peter and my name is reem hasna and we'll be your hosts here at gastronauts we are committed to exploring communication throughout the body with a focus on the crosstalk between gut and brain we invite speakers in this field to share both their research and their life journeys so come join me as we explore the steps that go into shaping a scientist on the gastronauts podcast We have two great speakers, Dr. Nick Betley and Dr. Dan Drucker. Dr. Nick Betley received his PhD from Columbia University in 2010, where he worked with Thomas Jessel and investigated the developmental programs that determine synaptic partners during circuit formation. For his postdoc, he worked in Genelli Research Campus with Scott Stamson, where they examined the structure and function of neural circuits that influence feeding behavior. Currently, he is an assistant professor of biology at the University of Pennsylvania. His lab is interested in understanding how the brain processes information from the external world to facilitate appropriate behavioral responses that are necessary for survival. Welcome, Dr. Nick. Thank you, Reem, and thank you to the Gastronauts team for getting us all set up this morning and Diego for finding Gastronauts. Dr. Drucker is an endocrinologist and professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of Toronto. He was trained in internal medicine and endocrinology at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and the Toronto General Hospital, and completed a research fellowship in molecular endocrinology at Massachusetts General Hospital. He has conducted pioneering work that has furthered our understanding of glucagon and GLP-1 and has authored several hundred publications and issued 33 patents covering various novel therapeutic aspects of peptide hormone action. His lab really focuses on these peptidergic networks and how they can be leveraged to treat human metabolic disorders. Thanks very much uh, for inviting me. It's uh, a lot of fun. To make this episode easier for you, we wanted to give you some context for some of the terms and words introduced later in the episode. The cerebellum, which stands for little brain, is a structure of the central nervous system. It has an important role in motor control. Next, glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, helps regulate your appetite, especially after eating. It also helps enhance the production of insulin. GLP-1 is produced in the gut, Mostly in the cells of the small intestine are the main source of GLP-1. Insulin. Insulin is a peptide hormone produced by beta cells of the pancreatic islet. It's considered to be the main anabolic hormone of the body. It regulates the metabolism of carbohydrates, fat, and proteins by promoting the absorption of glucose from the blood into the liver, fat, and skeletal muscle cells. the first question from Julia Dalman. As I was listening to your intro, I was wondering whether hibernating animals might be interesting 
to look at with regards to differences in feeding during the year, because presumably they have to put on an enormous amount of fat to be able to survive the period of hibernation. And so I was wondering whether anything is known about plasticity in the circuits that regulate that feeding behavior. Thanks, Julie. I think the question actually can apply to both of us in some ways. But um, <laughs> Canadians I know you... hibernate, but I think it's really directed to you. <laughs> I, no, I know it was originally, but I'm thinking about the Anchorton system and how it would be regulated differently in um, animals that hibernate is actually interesting. So I haven't looked at this directly, but when I first started the lab, I thought about different animals and how they could be potentially great model systems for understanding uh, differential regulation of circuits of systems that are involved in different aspects of feeding and you know one of the things that I thought would be you know really interesting would be to try to get these animals in the lab and and see if you know the different circuits are activated at different times and we've never looked or thought about the hibernating animals because this kind of project in the adaptive control of food intake is relatively new to our thinking but early on we were thinking about you know, how most animals eat in bouts or in meals, but uh, animals like sheep graze. And so we were trying to, we went to restaurants that use sheep to try to get sheep brains to see if their circuits are wired, especially their hypothalamic circuits are wired different so that there's this, you know, tonic feeding drive. And so I think what you're asking is a question that I have no data on, but a very interesting and compelling way to start to look at the brain across species to try to find these differences that are going to regulate different aspects of feeding. So you would imagine that it's highly unadaptive for an animal that's about to hibernate to have an upper bound. And I would agree with that. And so that system might be shut down right before the beginning of hibernation. And, and, and that's a cool approach. It's something I would love to do in the lab, given a few million more dollars and a few more people. Yeah. I, I mean, it was just a curiosity question, but thank you yeah. so much for your answer. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. It reminded me of that, like our context really informs, you know, our content and how we perceive or how individual cells signal or perceive is really dependent on what status they're in. So we actually have another follow-up question from Diego. At a basic level, uh, eating has two parts, uh, the desire to eat and get into the food. Do you think that the gut talks to the cerebellum to uh, coordinate getting to the food? The simplest hypothesis, because it's the cerebellum, may be that it's, it's involved in regulating some aspect of gating, you know, the, the approach to food or gating the muscles that have to be activated to eat. And what we've found in a lot of our studies is that it doesn't seem to have an effect on any of the motor aspects of food. Now, the motivation to approach food is a completely different question and is going to require a lot more experiments. So somebody in the chat has asked, have we done any of these conditioned place preferences, conditioned place avoidances, and we're, we're thinking about that, and we're actually starting to do those experiments. And one of the lines of evidence I can give you to say that the, the motor system itself isn't grossly affected by activating the cerebellum in the gut is that if we give different caloric densities of food, we find that the animal will actually scale its consumption so that an animal that's licking for one kcal per mil of food will drink quarter as much, or, or, or an animal that's licking for 0.1 kcal per mil food will drink 10 times more volume than an animal that's licking for one kcal per mil food. So what we think is happening is that the cerebellum is integrating signals from the gut that are telling you how much food you've consumed predicting how much food you've consumed and then maybe getting the motivation to continue eating food. Yeah. And so, you know, where we're going with this is to try to look at our classic quote unquote homeostatic or, or hypothalamic circuits and the classic hedonic reward like midbrain circuits and see if 
a neural activity in those regions is somehow connected to changes in the cerebellum. Yes, because if I could make like a very small comment in there, I think that there is a fascinating integration between this desire to eat and actually the impulse to get to the fridge or get to the grocery store, right? And get going. I think that is an area that has really not been explored as much. Yeah. And what, you know, to follow up on that a little bit, one of the you know, when I've, as I've started to try to understand what the cerebellum does, one of the interesting sets of literature that I've come upon is the role of the cerebellum in actually predicting a motor behavior. So more importantly than helping you motivate or, or, or initiate action, it actually is really involved in online correction of motor outcomes. So if I were to reach for my computer and slightly miss, the cerebellum is what tells me that I have to move my hand slightly over to the right to grab my computer. And what we've started to wonder, and this is pure conjecture, uh, so maybe beyond the scope of science, but what we're thinking about is that maybe it's involved in predicting, is this going to be enough food to make me full? And if the cerebellum becomes active and sends this big signal, it's like, it's, it's like you look at Thanksgiving dinner and the cerebellum just goes nuts and it's like, wow, I'm really, really going to be full at the end of this. And then it takes the body and the mind-brain connection, you know, hours to catch up to that. But there's a prediction that's laid down. And if the amount of food you eat doesn't match that, then you get a prediction error that somehow leads to you eating more food in your subsequent meals. Thank you. As a follow-up, the highest expression of insulin is in the cerebellum. So do our speakers have any thoughts on how GLP-1 or insulin might regulate some of the effects on feeding? Or perhaps insulin in the cerebellum helps you predict how much you are going to eat? Yeah, so the story of insulin in the brain is really fascinating and uh, has been controversial for decades in part because of reagents and in part because of different models. And I'm certainly not very knowledgeable on the current thought of what insulin made in the brain does. Certainly there are insulin receptors, you know, that are widespread in many different regions of the brain that control both CNS metabolism and the liver and probably even beta cell function. I've never seen a paper that says that GLP-1 regulates the brain insulin system directly. What GLP-1 does is reduce brain insulin resistance. So it might indirectly enhance insulin action in many different regions of the brain. And that happens in humans too. You can look at connectivity and functional MRIs, et cetera. But I don't know if GLP-1 actually increases the synthesis of the tiny little bits of insulin that are actually made in the brain. So I, I will tell you one story. Uh, I think trainees like to hear this because it's a, you know, I was wrong story. Uh, and you're going to be wrong numerous times as a scientist if you have a career in science. So, you know, one of the patents that I filed in the mid-1990s was around extending for GLP-1 inhibiting food intake. And Steve Bloom was among the first to publish this January 1st, 1996. And we rushed in the lab literally that week and administered uh, GLP-1 intracerebroventricularly into the brain and GLP-1 inhibited food intake. But the reason that it did that, at least I thought, was because it paralyzed the animals. They did not move for 24 hours. And so if you can't move, as we're talking about, you can't get to the end of the cage to get the kibble. You can't go to the fridge or to the grocery store if you're paralyzed. So we filed patents saying that GLP-1 was like a tranquilizer and we could use it in context of agitation and abnormal behavior. And of course, what I was seeing was the aversive effects of GLP-1. Animals didn't move because they were so sick that the only thing they could do was huddle in a corner and hunch over. And for years, 
I was very skeptical that we could use that property of GLP-1 to inhibit food intake therapeutically because I was not certain how we could separate out the aversive response from the actual pure anorectic response. And that problem plagued clinical GLP-1 therapeutics where nausea and vomiting clearly prevented many people from being successful on the therapies. But I was totally wrong. My wife loves when I say this every day, we have a thing where I say I was totally wrong because we now know that if one gives GLP-1 slowly, we can build up tachyphylaxis to the aversive component, but still retain the anorectic component. So this is a big thing with, as you know, Nick knows better than most people, when you're studying pure food responses, one has to be so careful in making sure that one doesn't have a component of aversive stimulation. And certainly that's a big issue in the field because a lot of things converge on a reduction of food intake. They're not all pure anorectic stimuli. Being able to say I was wrong is a really useful skill. It's very difficult when you're 25 or 30 to say that it does get easier with time. And trust me, have that in your pocket. It's just going to hasten your success in all walks of life. You know, it's interesting you talked about, let's not talk about being wrong. I haven't gotten old enough yet, apparently. You're, you're, you're a young guy. You're mostly uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think it's interesting you talked about the, the, the specificity for an anorectic response and, you know, the motor output, because I would say that this project had a similar trajectory in that probably for the first 12 to 18 months when I would see this data, I would kind of look at it and be like, well, this is great, but you know, what if the animal's just moving less? What if this is, you know, just making the animal feel sick? And, you know, really the only reason I'm talking about it today is because of the determination of a postdoc Aloysius to continue and do, I don't know, the 432 control experiments that we came up with at lab meeting to show that it's none of the above. But I think that's a testament to uh, the individual researcher and like something that everybody here who's still in the lab should take home that, you know, if you have a phenotype that you really believe, don't be afraid of proving it wrong. Do the hard experiments that may actually lead to you finding out that it's wrong, because at the end of the day, the strength of your data will stand on how willing you are to interrogate it. Now I fully believe this thing, but 18 months ago, there was a lot of questions. And a lot of times people will hear me say that and do a subset of the controls. And so it's really exciting to be part of a project where somebody really tries to prove themselves wrong. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those stories with us. It's really helpful. Just reassuring to hear, you know, that failure is a part of the research and making sure that you have the proper number of controls. Dana had a quick follow-up question to uh, the thing that Reem mentioned earlier. I had a comment just about the cerebellum. I love the cerebellum. I've loved the cerebellum for a very long time. It goes back to 2001 with my chocolate study in humans uh, when I found that the cerebellar response to chocolate decreased with satiety. And that made me wonder what the heck it was doing, just like Nick has been wondering. So I did some research and, and I think there's a really interesting link with the olfactory system. So olfaction and sniffing and therefore food finding, searching behavior is regulated by the cerebellum. 
So that's the Smith volume titrating to the odor concentration. Fast forward to now, and I wish my graduate student was here, we've been doing some work on odor imagery and craving. She, we've just got some preliminary data where we were looking at the ability, a, a brain readout of the ability to image odors, and, and then we we're correlating that with craving. And the only area that was sensitive to the ability to image odors and that predicting craving was the cerebellum, which is really interesting if you think about the cerebellum in terms of prediction, because what an image is, is a prediction about a certain food. So you walk in the airport, you smell the cinnamon, and the extent to which you imagine eating it may enhance the craving um, and enhance the predictions, therefore. So I just wanted to point that out, Nick, and, and say, you know, there's a lot of work coming out on the olfactory system, and you might take a look at it because you could find some potentially interesting experimental ideas there. Thank you. That's a, interesting to hear that the cerebellum is popping out in many different kinds of food cues. Have you ever seen a study, not, not to flip the question back on you, but have you ever seen a study where uh, a human has consumed calories in the scanner and the cerebellum becomes active? Yeah, so it's funny. The chocolate study that I did when I was a grad student at mm -hmm. McGill is still the only neuroimaging study where people were actually eating. I see. And they were eating a good quantity. So we were feeding people chocolate until they cried uncle, essentially. Oh, cool. So they would eat a lot of chocolate. And the cerebellum is definitely sensitive to that. It changes over time as they ate. Cool, thank you. So zooming out a bit, we often don't have one need in isolation. We're often hungry and thirsty or hungry and sleepy. But how does our brain prioritize our needs or even distinguish? I'm going to let Nick take that, but they go together. I would say that it was kind of the driving question of my lab when I first set up the lab. So how do you prioritize not so much eating and drinking, but I would prioritize eating versus sleeping versus mating versus uh, fear. And there were two models that we came up with at the time. And, and one was that you have all of these different needs that you sense with different sensory systems. So, you know, an animal will sense fear with its olfactory system. It will sense hunger with its interoceptive system. And are those signals being funneled through the circuits in the brain to a quote unquote decider cell? There's a master regulatory node in the brain that makes your decision, right? Like a, a switchboard. So these cells hit a button and say, you shall eat now, or you shall run now, right? Or are there networks that are set up in which these needs can cross filter each other? And I would say that the early evidence, at least from work we've done and, and at least nine or 10 other labs looking at hypothalamic circuits is beginning to suggest is that these circuits are set up in cross-filtering pathways where one need can basically filter out another need as it's entering the brain and reminding me kind of of my presynaptic inhibition days. So if hunger is so high, there are hunger circuits set up to basically suppress fear information as it enters the brain at, at different nodes. Then there's not a master decider, but there's a series of circuits set up into a network that all contribute to the overall state or the overall decision of the animal. And of course, those things are going to be regulated by aspects that I haven't even integrated into this model. So the overall inflammation state of the animal may, may impact uh, how it responds differently to these different stimuli, which is why we get individual differences. We not only get that in humans, but we get that in, in animals. One way to think of it is when we have different states, 
there's a different influence on effect. But another way we can think about things is how do things change over time, right? From early adolescence to adulthood. And I think uh, Natalie has a question on that. I was wondering if anybody has ever done recombinase-based genetic fate mapping of GLP-1 cells in mice. And I'm curious about this question because I wonder if early embryonic origin of GLP-1 cells can help to explain some of the diverse functional contributions of GLP-1 to different tissues into adulthood. I'm coming from like an intersectional genetics background. So you just really pinpointed how you expect, and I think you're probably right about this, about how GLP-1 can have effects on cells that don't have GLP-1 receptors. And I wonder if that diversity, we can kind of explain this based on some fate mapping experiments. There isn't a lot of work that I've seen in the brain. So the, the GLP-1 system is fairly localized. So, you know, brainstem and this population of gut intraendocrine cells and, and the developmental biology of gut intraendocrine cells is very well worked out. There are lots and lots of papers now during embryonic development in both my sense, some even in, in human looking at the lineages and the late differentiation of L cells. And there's a lot of work in, in the pancreas as well. So there may well be roles for GLP-1 in late development based on where the cells are and what receptor populations arise. But I, I don't think it's been looked at extensively and not in the brain that I've read. Very cool, thank you. Actually having Dr. Drucker and Dr. Betley from different career pathways made the discussion much more fruitful. I'm really interested to understand and to know what motivated you to become a physician, Dr. Drucker, and what motivated you, Dr. Buckley, to become a basic scientist? Yeah, so I, I'm still, I ask myself that question every day. And, you know, when I, when I used to read medical school interviews, people would say, I knew ever since I was six years old and I put a Band-Aid on my brother that I wanted to be a doctor. And I was 45 years old and I go like, I don't know if I really want to be a doctor, but I guess I am now. So I'm going to do this. So, you know, I, I never was one of these people that had a light bulb. I think I would have loved to be a lawyer or an engineer or, you know, a golf course uh, maintenance guy. There's just so many cool things to, to do. And probably for me, uh, it was just a little bit of anxiety and security. So I would write a great essay in grade nine and I would get a 62 you know, or a C plus. And I would ask the English teacher, like, why didn't you like my essay? And she would say, well, you know, you didn't really understand what Plato was saying and what he meant to emote to his audience. And I would say to myself, how the heck do you know what Plato has said? The guy's been dead for like hundreds of years. And, and then I would do the, you know, my science courses and there was just like only one right answer and it wasn't subjective. And I had less insecurity about having to please a professor to do well. And so that sort of attracted me to the science that people weren't going to mess with me that in physics and chemistry and biology, this was the way it works. And you didn't have to pretend you knew what Plato was saying when he wrote that really cool thing. And so I think I just gradually evolved into, you know, sciences and biomedical sciences. There's nobody in my family that was a physician. I had no role models. I just liked sort of the certainty of science. Maybe I was insecure. 
That's a super interesting answer from to somebody who was an English major in college. So I actually majored in English and I got the same response from my professors. I couldn't break a B on a Shakespeare class to save my life. It was the thing that was dragging my GPA down was all the English classes I insisted on taking. It, it, you know, my pathway into science is also less clear. I didn't actually set out to become a lab head or run a lab or do research and and I feel in some ways that it's unfortunate that students and postdocs now actually can't start with pathways like that. I, I get applications for summer students to work in my lab who've had like nine years of research experience and they're 18 already. And, you know, they've been in a lab since they were not, not really, but a lot of people get in labs now in early years of high school. And I didn't even know what research was until I was a junior in college. Um, and I kind of stumbled into a lab and what prevented me from stumbling out of the lab was kind of the flexibility to do whatever you were interested in doing. And, you know, at the time I was looking at how a frog egg develops. To me, that was the most fascinating thing to sit there and do an experiment that nobody else in the world has done. And like, I'm the only guy in the world that knows the answer to this right now. And somehow that was compelling enough to keep me doing it for 20 more years. And, and now I'm sitting here now. So there was no plan. It was just kind of almost like an addiction to doing the next experiment that kept me in science. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those perspectives. Those thoughts really resonated with me. I was thinking, uh, you know, when I was going through the process, a lot of it tends to be, what do you enjoy? What do you like doing? And perhaps I felt science was really cut and dry. There were certain rules that we followed and certain perspectives that we brought to the table. But as I'm getting more and more into my science career, I'm still learning that there's not always a definitive answer and things that we think functioned in one way may have additional functions um, that we hadn't thought about. So I really wanna thank you two both for having such a great talk and leading such a great session with us. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. For more of our content, you can follow us on Twitter at The Gut Brain Matters or visit our website, thinkastronauts.com. The Gastronaut Podcast would be impossible without our incredible team, Meredith Schmill, our producer and theme music composer, and a special thanks to the founder of Gastronaut, Dr. Diego Bohorquez and the Bohorquez Laboratory. 